It is good to be here. It's good to see you all here. And uh, for those who are streaming at home, we're taking your feedback into consideration. We're working on it, the learning process for all of us, but that was nice. It's wonderful to hear all your voices, and we're getting there. The next two weeks, uh, we're going to take a quick look at uh, the reason kind of behind that song choice of Roland's was we're going to take a quick look for two weeks at Jesus and the greatest command. When he's asked what Peter uh, read in Matthew 22, how he responds, and especially in this season, especially at the end of the year, I thought it was appropriate to take a look at this. The, uh, the best title I can come up with is not what is love, uh, that may bring up 80 songs and SNL skits, but what is love? Emphasis on the is. If you were to ask people that question, what is love, in addition to the aforementioned things, you probably get a lot of answers. Um, I took a quick Google search at just love in the country and came up with some interesting statistics concerning a few things. I came up with some things concerning Valentine's Day, the most popular month to get engaged, most popular wedding month, and the number of weddings generally in a year. Anyone want to take a guess at Valentine's Day earlier this year, pre-pandemic, mind you? Anyone want to take a gander? <laughs> no one brave enough to... <laughs> You're way low, Casey. Anyone? 27.4 billion dollars in the US alone. Who knew you can make such a profit off chocolate, candy, and hearts? <laughs> Although that's total sales, I'm not sure how they calculate that number, but that's what the uh, that's what they came up with this year. What is the most popular month to get engaged? Anyone? June heard? A lot of murmuring. It's actually December. For Christmas time, you know, the, under, the ring under the tree, possibly. Now, what's the most popular wedding month, though? Yeah. Wrong. September, believe it or not. We're June. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't believe any of this. 16%. Uh, so I, I'm a, we're a June wedding, so we, we fall into that. I would not have guessed. How many guesses for number of weddings in a year in the U.S. annually, roughly? Three hundred what? Three hundred? <laughs> Two million, approximately. I don't know what you do with these numbers. Uh, besides, I want a piece of that, but that's a whole other story. They don't really tell us anything about what love is. Uh, we see that people will spend a lot for what they perceive love to be. Uh, December is apparently more romantic month uh, than we thought. But it doesn't really tell us anything about it. So let's go to um, why even get married. Let's stay on this theme. This is a something from the Pew Research Center. Uh, why get married? Well, love is actually the number one. Whoops. There we go. Making uh, but, but little, love is number one commitment. Cool, I guess. Followed by making a lot of commitment, companionship, having kids, religious ceremony, financial stability for legal rights and benefits. And they're obviously not getting engaged in, September, in December, but that's another story. This still doesn't tell us anything about love. It tells us that love is a reason behind it. So finally, let's go to the dictionary, shall we? According to dictionary.com, love is an intense feeling of deep affection or a great interest or pleasure in something, which I love the thing that they chose for the great interest, his love for football, very appropriate in this season. Some of you might be able to 
Amen to that. But See, this gets us a little bit closer. But then, if this, all, if this is all that love is, I think many of us know that who have been around a while that that feeling, even among the most committed relationships, can come and go. Is it possible simply to, once you're out of love, to move on? Well, that's what some people believe in our culture currently. Some people who are of all shapes and sizes and ages and such yearn for this intense feeling and never really get it. Or they get it from someone they don't want. <laughs> all the above. It still doesn't really help. But what is love? Whenever Jesus is asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest command? And he responds as he does. Which is, as I turn there, I thought I had it marked, but apparently I don't, so I must talk while I get to the page. When he responds, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Based on this quick definition of love, what does that mean? Does it mean that we have to give God as much as we can to get up to the Valentine's Day sales? Does it mean we have to become a Christian in December? Does it mean that each of us must have that intense, deep feeling for every single one of us? And does that mean we have to reciprocate? What does any of this mean? What is love? Well, the thing is to go back in Matthew 22. We have to go back to what Jesus is talking about. And what he is talking about is the Shema. The Shema was a prayer that every Jew would say every morning. Every morning. Not only as a family, but oftentimes as individuals, all the time. And it was this prayer. Now the commandment from Deuteronomy 6. And it says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going to, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God unto your son and to your son's son, by keeping his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. And here, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing of milk and honey. Here's the beginning of a Shema with that background. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And it does go on. We've talked in previous sermons about how some Jews took that very literally and they would actually have boxes on their forehead and they would sew verses into their clothes as a way of reminding it. But this is what Jesus is referring to whenever he is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He takes the Shema and takes out the first little bit, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the greatest and first commandment. That word in Hebrew for love is really nothing special. 
It simply means to love, such as a parent would a child, as two married people would, as uh, two friends would. You know, this is the kind of love that people talk about when it came. David loved Jonathan as a very strong friendship love. This is also a word maybe used between two people making an agreement or two kings of countries if they got along well or came to a good agreement that they had this kind of feeling between them that they went off and they uh, were okay with it. So the defining the word doesn't really help as far as from a Hebrew lexicon. It just means love. We're back to where we started. So we have to look around it. How would a Hebrew know how to define their own word. Well, it's very much like we do nowadays. We define words based on usage. How else is this word used in their context? Well, a little bit later in Deuteronomy 7, we say this, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. This is the Lord talking to Israel. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the land, hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, this may seem like verse you just kind of read on, pass by. You go, yes, I understand that, and pass by. But look at what it's saying here. It's saying that the Lord does not love Israel, and therefore his people, and if you want to make that connection, because of any extrinsic value, there's nothing that we've, they or we have done to earn it. There's no external reason. There's nothing that compels God. I like what it says. The Lord didn't set his love on you because of any of these reasons. You are actually the fewest and the weakest and such. But it's because the Lord loves you. Simply put, that the Lord's love for his people comes from within the Lord, and if it is from within the Lord, it is like the Lord. It simply is, was, and will be. Many people don't understand the love that your parents have for you until you're much older, and in my case, very much until you have your own children of your own. The fact that it can simply be something that springs up from within you. There's nothing you've done to earn it. There's nothing you do to keep it. Children are actually very, you know, if they if they were clients, we'd probably jet them. If we were people we'd hire, we'd probably... No, they're, they're not a good return on investment over 18 years, really. <laughs> they're not but we love them because it's from within us as parents. At least it is from good parents. It just comes, and it is. This is the kind of love that the love in Deuteronomy 6 is based on, the love of the Lord, which simply is. Not because of anything, but is. Well, let's keep looking around Deuteronomy, shall we? A little while back, as a matter of fact, it says, because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you graces greater and mightier to bring you up, to give you their land and inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it in your heart that the Lord in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. We have two aspects, which we may know this, but it's pointing out in Scripture. We have an intrinsic feeling, if you want to say, <laughs> Something intrinsic that simply is, but also something that is given in action. God will continually remind his people in many contexts, granted, but predominantly in the beginning, 
beginning, you know, before judges and before the rest of Israel's mess up, he reminds them of why he brought them out of Egypt, why he has been their God, because he loves them. And so you connect that by saying it's not enough that the, that the God of the universe simply does love it, but he shows his people, he acts in his people, and in a sense, we want to use this word, he proves. Not that the Lord needs to prove anything, but the fact that his love is there is proven by his actions. And so we have the two sides of the love coin. We have something intrinsic, something because, and then something given out in action. You can say, the Lord could say to his people all the day, I love you, and then wave goodbye as they're carried off by whatever happened, whatever powerful army comes by today. Now, the flip side of that is sometimes he does, but he always comes back around and says, we'll get to that in just a minute. Let's keep looking in the Old Testament for a second here. In Deuteronomy 10, right around here, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding, which am I commanding you today for your good. I want you to notice the verbs here. To fear, serve, walk, keep. They're all based around love, and they're all actions done out of a love that God expects reciprocated out of his. All of these, we sometimes get caught up, and I bring this up because we sometimes get caught up in one or the other. We get caught up in keeping the commandments and statutes. We get caught up in serving. We get caught up in, in trying to do everything right, walking. Sometimes we get caught up in fearing of God. It actually means to revere, but that's not this sermon. You would forget the most important thing that everything else predicated and based on, which is to love God. Out of and because he loves us. Everything is based on the love of God. Not just everything from God, but everything from the love of God has to still be based on the love of God. The foundation for everything, 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 the law, the prophet, all of history, the New Testament, Jesus, the church, doctrine, everything has its foundation on God's love. That's where we have to start any biblical conversation when it comes to trying to define what love is, because it all comes back to being defined by and from God's love first and foremost, both what it is, so he says, and what he does, which explains it further. We could go on and on and on and on looking at every single page of the Old Testament, looking at how God's love is revealed in them, but you wouldn't stay here for all that. I might, but even I might get tired of it eventually if I was the one talking. So we won't cover everything. But this brings us to Jesus. Everything is based on the love of God. And so when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, the Shema, Deuteronomy, history, the prophets, all of the Old Testament, is what I'm getting at. All of, let's see, all of, almost, I passed it. All of that, the Old Testament, is what goes into love. 
the Lord your God. Not just in terms of how people have not, not just in terms of how people should, but all the history of God has been revealed to be is summed up in love the Lord. We're not going to be exhausted today, as I said, but today I want to go over five characteristics of love. Five ways of defining, five ways of explaining, five ways of looking at the character of God that may explain a little bit of what is love and why it matters to us today. The first one, love is covenantal. Now this is a big religious word. We use it a little bit in secular terms. Not many people anymore call it a marriage covenant. Um, in fact, most of the things I hear anymore are um, like housing covenants when it comes to subdivisions. What is covenant? Well, I like how Dr. Scott McKnight defines it. I've preached on this before, and I use it again. He defines a covenant very simply as a rugged commitment. A rugged commitment implies it's going to be bumpy, implies it's going to be hard, implies it's going to be tough, both maybe the committing as well as the commitment, but a commitment, not just a saying, not just a feeling, not just a piece of paper, but a commitment. One of these days, whenever we can, I'll do a series on marriage, and I'll define this a little bit more, why the pieces of paper matter, why the feelings matter, why everything that we do matters. But for now, a rugged commitment. This actually goes all the way back to Genesis 15. And we're not going to go into all the scriptures today because uh, we're doing a big overview to set up next week. So I'm going to put all the scriptures up here. I will post them on the website afterwards if you want to go back and review them for yourself. Uh, the scripture references will be up here, though. I'm not going to necessarily turn to everyone, just FYI. In Genesis 15, God for the first time makes a true covenant with his people. In Genesis uh, 12, he promises Abram that he would do these things, and Abram simply had to uh, exist. But in 15, he makes a true covenant with Abram. The fact that Abram must do certain things and God must do certain things. And they made a covenant, which in the Old Testament, forgive me for the graphicness, they would cut a couple animals in half and pass through the middle of them, basically signifying the fact that if I broke my word on this covenant, may I be, as we have done these animals to be, may I be split in half and killed if I break my promise. That's how serious they took covenants. And we should take covenants. Take covenants. Genesis 15 is God's rugged commitment to Abram. And if you were to turn to Genesis 15, you'll notice that there's not very much stipulated. It says, Abram, follow me and be faithful. But God doesn't put a time limit on it. God doesn't put an obedience limit. If you do this many things, then I'm, then I'm out. God says, I will do this. I will be here. I will do this with you and for you. Period. A rugged commitment to demonstrate God's love for his people. It is fitting that God should, play, uh, should explain his love and his actions with his people in a covenant, that we've taken the marriage covenant so seriously, because in, Genesis, in Jeremiah chapter 3, God actually declares that because of Israel's infidelity, he issues them a decree of divorce, breaking, signifying, in a sense, that Israel had broken their side of the covenant so harshly that he wanted to send them away. Now, he didn't really send them away and didn't really put them away. He was always with them. But he signifies through Jeremiah, this is how seriously that you are 
that I, your God, am taking what you have done. You don't just do that. God wouldn't just decree that unless it was serious, unless Israel was breaking something which never should have been broken. Yet, even through the decree is my point, even through God decreeing that I issue you and put you away with the uh, decree of divorce, God never abandons them. He keeps his rugged commitment to his people even when they are committing grievous acts of infidelity. The whole book of Hosea Hosea is the story of Gomer and Hosea and how that whole story illustrates how Israel was to God as Gomer was to Hosea. Hosea, faithful, loving, providing. Gomer, not at all. The whole story of Hosea illustrates how over and over and over Israel and God's people will spit on the covenant God made them, but yet God remains faithful. In Matthew 5, <laughs> Matthew 5, the whole Sermon on the Mount, everything that Jesus is basing his teaching on in Matthew 5, you've heard it said, but I say to you, every one of them is based on what? The covenant of God. Every single one of them that he is correcting the Israelites on came from the old law, the old covenant. It's not really the old covenant, but it's the made full covenant in Christ. It still applies. Everything that Jesus says is the fulfillment, is the continuation of the covenant for how God has committed to his people and how his people are expected to act towards a God who once again loves them. And finally, in Ephesians 1, we are given the seal of the Holy Spirit. Seal of the covenant that God is still faithful to to this day, sometimes regardless of his people. God and his love is covenantal, a rugged commitment through the bumps, in the bumps, in the valleys, rugged commitment. Love is, second point, love is effective or affectionate. Yes, I do believe that love is not just, as we sometimes define it, simply a choice or a matter of the will. If you truly care about someone, if you truly love someone, you ought to show it. And we see this by the sense, um, what we just read as a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 4, that God set his affection on his people. Completely different word for love. It actually does mean how you would imagine it. It imagines that God is sitting there and hugging and kissing and, and being affectionate toward his people. Love is effective. How are you to show your love towards someone if they never know it? Once again, in action. Ezekiel 16. As I put that up there, it may be 14. I'm pretty sure it's 16, as a matter of fact. In Ezekiel 16, God recounts how Israel has cheated on him by rejecting every marital commitment that God was to give them. In the Old Testament, there were four things that were expected in a marriage. One was sexual fulfillment. The other was food, clothes, and shelter, in essence. If any one of those were broken, they could file for a divorce. In Ezekiel 16, God recounts how Israel tore the clothes that he gave her, spat out the food, and trampled on it and lived other places with other idols, other people. God <laughs> moans, <laughs> dare I say, over the fact that he is trying to give his bride, his spouse, every, everything and trying to lavish her with his love and affection and Israel keeps going, no. Not just no, but tramples and spits on it. 
God bemoans the fact that Israel continually rejects his affection. Once again, the whole book of Hosea is all about this. Malachi says this, the fact that God loved his people and it pains him whenever they were unfaithful. And indeed, in John 1, we see in the beginning was the Word, and was with God, the Word was God, and God came down to be with his people. And John continues to say over and over and over that who is God? God is love manifested in Jesus. Jesus with his people. Love is affectionate, effective, not just a feeling, not just a commitment, but all these are layers you understand. Love is, number three, presence. It was a good class this morning, Casey. I thought of this most of the time, as a matter of fact. Love is presence. What does Jesus mean? He could be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Believe me, and other military members can see it here too, marriages suffer whenever you're deployed or gone for long periods of time. Air crew was one of the highest divorce rates in the Air Force whenever I was in. Why? Because we were gone 300 days a year. In fact, one of my deployments, a man opened a package expecting a care package and opened his package to divorce papers. One of the reasons I got out, as a matter of fact. Because love is presence. Being present with his people. We see this in the very beginning of Scripture. In the very beginning, how it was always meant to be. God and his people walking side by side in the cool of the garden, in the cool of the day. Even after Adam and Eve sinned, who came looking for whom? Why? Because God loved them, wanted to be with them. Love is not far, but love is near. Genesis 28, this is Jacob's ladder. I go back to this over and over and over, talking about how God's presence is important. Jacob's walking along. He has a vision, sees the ladder, and I love his exclamation. He goes, Thomas, revised version, wow, I didn't know God was here too. Because God is with his people and wants to be with his people wherever they will let him in. The whole book of Daniel is all about presence. Daniel, even after he has been exiled to Babylon, even after Israel and Judah have been ransacked, Israel was destroyed actually long before Daniel went. Israel was destroyed in 722. Daniel didn't go to Babylon until 596. Even after all that time, who is working in Daniel and Babylon? Who is making his will known and manifest even through these exiled people in a faraway place in a pagan land? God. God is with his people. We just got done talking about it the other day. The whole book of Haggai is about how presence with God, God's presence with his people, and then vice versa, us intentionally being present with God in our temples there, the physical temple and not daily lives. It's so important to God making known His will and manifesting His will. And finally, the Gospels are all about this. The Gospel is all about what God did when He became with us. God is love, and love is presence. We could go on and on even about this, the fact that He has made His temple now, not in some faraway place we make a pilgrimage to every now and then. Now God has made His presence known in His temple, the church, each one of us, God wants to be with us if we let Him. Love is covenantal. Love is effective. Love is presence. Number four, love is advocacy. This may be a loaded term, maybe nowadays. I don't know what necessarily comes to mind when you hear this term, but it simply means 
sticking up and speaking to the best for people. Like anything else, this has been abused in society. I'm not talking about the extreme examples of where it's gone wrong. When you look at someone and you want the best for them, and when you're willing to stick your feet in the mud with the people who are already there to say, this is not what's good for you, let me help you out of it. That's advocacy. Advocacy is speaking into being with people, and so you can speak to people in a way that brings them from where they are to where they ought to be. And God does this. I put I am who I am up here because in Exodus 3, we see it not only with Moses when he says, Moses, to be blunt, I don't really care what you think. You're going to do this because you can. But the whole point of who Moses was set to be, his people who were enslaved in Egypt, and God saying, that's not where you need to be. I am with you and I will bring you to where you ought to be. My people out of bondage and slavery. This is inherent in God's character. I am who I am. The very beginning of when God says this, I am who I am, is advocating for his people. It's intrinsic and inherent to God's character as he's an advocate for those who love him. I need to stop turning this clicker off. I keep messing myself up. There we go. The whole book of Judges is a sin cycle to where things are good for a while. Israel forgets God. Israel is ransacked by a nation. They go, oh, this is terrible. And then they remember God. Over and over and over, I think it's seven or eight times. The, the book of, side note, the book of Judges is horrible. But I, I can't help but laugh because every so often, oh look, another army, there they go again. You think they'd learn. You think we'd learn. The book of Judges is constantly about the fact that even though God allows the consequences of their actions to catch up with them, he never abandons them. And when they call out saying, God, I'm sorry, he goes, this is not where you ought to be. Let me take you back to where you ought to be. God advocates for his people even after they have over and over and over forgotten him. The whole book of Isaiah is about this too. Constantly Isaiah reminds the people of Israel, this is not who you ought to be. Malik, uh, no, no, no. Amos could be right in here too. Amos spends the first two chapters hitting on it. Amos is a goat herder from southern Israel, right? He goes up to the political elites in northern Israel. He walks into the room at a big party, and I can just imagine it going silent. And he starts pronouncing judgment on all the surrounding towns, all the surrounding countries. I can just imagine it going, yeah, 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 and he says, Judah. And they go, yeah, and then they go, Israel. And he goes, wait a minute. Now you're meddling. Amos speaks into that society and says, this is not who you are meant to be. Love is speaking even when people don't want to hear it. Haggai once again, this is not how you're supposed to be, my people. Don't all forget me. You don't neglect the one thing that is central to your life. Romans 12. I want to read this one. This is one of my favorites. Everything's my favorite. Scripture is my favorite. Amen. <laughs> Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The question is, be transformed into what? Well, that segues right into our last point. Love is direction. Whenever I counsel premarital couples, or even dating couples for that matter, I always ask, 
Where are they loving you to? And where are you being loved to? What I mean by that is, we're familiar with this concept, right? If we look west, on nice days, we see Mount Jefferson. On really nice days, we can see the Three Sisters, Three Finger Jack. How often do we see them, though, coming up in this bottom time? They'll be gone for a while. But every now and then, even in the middle of winter, every now and then, the clouds will part, and we'll get to see a glimpse of the Cascades. We'll go, oh, it's still there. And there it is. Let me do a bit of marital work, shall we? Whenever you're in a relationship, and I'm speaking to no matter where you are, you should always, you can always see it, but you should be getting glimpses of not only who the person you love but who they are striving to be. It doesn't come out every now and then, but especially when you're dating, you should get these glimpses. Maybe it's hidden for most of the time, but every now and then you should get these glimpses of, oh, look, a mountain. And if you're not getting those glimpses of who the person is striving to be or the glimpses you're getting is concerning or not someone who you'd aspire to be, those are red flags. We're like that, though, in the church. Ever so often, even individually and as a church, we have glimpses of this is who we could be in God. This is who we could be. Oh, this is amazing. And then we wake up the day and we go, man, what happened? Anyone ever felt like that with your own personal life? I'm getting it. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. What happened? Think of Paul in Romans 7. I don't do what I want to do, and I want to do what I don't do. It's just I'm all messed up, God. The direction though who you are being loved and who you are loving towards. When it comes to God's love, he is always loving people towards himself. He is always loving people towards being the best people they can be in him. He is always loving people back to what they are originally meant to be. Not messed up humans corrupted by evil and principalities and powers, but people who are obeying the tree of good and bad, learning from God as they should, and choosing to be godly in every situation. That's the goal. Love is part of that. Genesis 2, once again, I just I preempted myself. Genesis 2, God is trying to love Adam and Eve to do what is right. Instead, they get a bit preoccupied with what they want. Deuteronomy 28 and 30, this is the covenantal code. This is often called the covenant of blessing and cursing. And oftentimes we emphasize the cursing part because there's a lot more cursing of of Israel than it seems than not. What's the whole point of this passage? The whole point of the passage is God saying, this is who you ought to be. This is the people that you ought to be. Someone set apart from my own self. Someone who, who who the nations notice and go, why do you do these things? Wow, your God is amazing. And instead... Even the covenant of blessing and cursing is to love God's people towards himself. First and second Kings, God constantly holds the leaders of Israel, not just David, but constantly holds the leaders of Israel accountable for bringing his people where? Farther away from him or to him? More often than not, away from him, which leads us into the whole cursing thing again. The Gospels are all about this, the fact that Jesus came and doesn't just tell you, this is how you do to be right with God. No, 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 Jesus comes and says, in me, you are right with God. Not just talking about here, do this action, but becoming and being transformed completely into someone different than the world has made you out to be, advocating for transforming into who you should have always been. Romans 8 says it quite bluntly. See if I can get there quickly. 
Romans 8, right after the well-known passage of... uh, I'll just turn to it before I put a Bible cover in my mouth. Romans 8. He says, and we know, for those of you who were here a couple months ago, we know what this passage means. And we know for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And here it is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his Son, that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. There's some things to hash out in there, but what does that mean? It says that God will work his will so that the people who are loving God and who are called by him are transformed, what? Into the image of Jesus. That's always the direction of God's love. In essence, if you didn't catch what I always ended with just about, love is Christ. Christ is the ultimate manifestation of God's love. God's love is covenant. By Christ, we made full the old covenant and instituted the new covenant, which is really just the fulfillment of the old. That's stuff to hatch out. In Christ, we have affection of his people, that God came close, that God would come and, and be with the people that needed him most. That God, that Christ, Emmanuel, as I said, means God with us. He came to be like one of us so we could be like him. Christ, through Christ, we can overcome the things that bring us away from God. And through Christ and his spirit, we're advocated to be fully human, fully what we are meant to be. Through Christ and his spirit, through God's love, we are transformed into his image of his son, transformed into that image of God. God continually wants us to be like. Next week, we'll hash out a little bit more of this in the second half of loving the neighbor. But this is enough for today, the fact that what is love? The easy answer is Christ. And so if you ever ever ask, what really is love? Go tell someone, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what is love? Love is covenantal, a rugged commitment. Love is presence. Love is affection, love is advocacy, and love is transformation. This <laughs> is the kind of love that we are called by Jesus to love God with, to love each other with, and to be what the world sees when they look at our love. We'll flesh this more out next week. But for now, the question remains three things. How do you love God? How do you love each other? And is this what people see when they see our love from the outside in? It's a lofty thing. There's no excuses. But through God's love, it is possible. Let us be lovers like God is of us as seen in Jesus, empowered by his Spirit. Let that be our legacy. Heavenly Father, you've asked us not an easy task to love like you. There's a reason you're God, and we are not. 
but we know, God, you don't take that as, a, as an excuse. Help us to realize the impact of the fact that you have made your covenant with us and you are not going anywhere, that your love is sustained and true and pure and powerful. Let's dwell on that even for a moment. Help us to be touched by your affections. Help us to see your presence in this world, in each other, through Scripture, through your Spirit, through creation. Help us to realize that you, even in the midst of our worst times, continually advocate for us through your Spirit, the Helper, and that we should be doing that for each other. And to help us do our part, not only for each of us individually to transform into you, the best reflection of you we can, but help us to be doing that with each other and for each other as a church, that we may do that for the world. No small task that you ask us to love you, but by the fact that you love us is everything we need to accomplish that task. Work in us, empower us, forgive us when we don't live up to it, and continually be with us as we strive to be your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.